Welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Dan Koch is the host of the You Have Permission podcast, and he's working towards his doctorate in counseling psychology at Northwest University. His spiritual harm and abuse scale was published in May in a scientific journal, and uh, his main interests are overlapping questions and intersections between music, psychology, and religion and spirituality. That's me. That's awesome. Almost like I wrote that. (laughs) Yeah. I had some help. Hey, I could totally relate to the music, psychology, and religion mashup. That's my jam. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Music is the music is the newest addition to that from like a more of like a academic research like lens. But we'll see how far that goes because it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely intersects with spirituality so heavily. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that Martyr She Wrote is an all time, just an absolute all time title. (laughs) I'm glad you like it. Incredible. Yeah, I I had to get some sarcasm in there because otherwise I would explode. Yeah, Yeah, you need to temper the temper the pain with humor. It's wise. Exactly. So we're here to talk about religious trauma. And you, you know, you even created a spiritual harm and abuse scale. So I'm assuming that you've had some sort of personal experience or, or professional experience with it. What what piqued your interest? Yeah, personal experience first. I've I've had some professional experience just as an intern, you know, as like with uh, clients at my last year's internship site. Um, but personally, you know, I didn't have it as bad as a lot of people. I was not raised fundamentalist. I was raised kind of moderate evangelical in California. My dad was a therapist, you know, so not, you know, with a master's degree, not a biblical counselor. Like, you know, I wasn't sort of like all the way in that soup. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank God, literally. Um, so I did, however, have some fundamentalist and, you know, just unhealthy folks mostly in my Christian school orbit, Hmm. less so at church. And one of them in sixth grade gave me some book about how Jesus was returning that fall. Uh Oh, and it, it was like a repackaging of the 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Oh my gosh. Uh, That might not, that might not be the exact phrasing, very popular booklet, like a, a booklet that sold like a million copies around 88. This one was geared for 90, for whatever whatever year it was the fall that I uh 94 and uh it freaked me out I had panic attacks I mm. had trouble sleeping it became the single biggest trigger of panic attacks in my life where sort of end times related content wow or predictions or word choice by people uh so you know all the way through like Obama's uh inauguration essentially and much, much better now with that kind of stuff. But that was, you know, it, it was a major, it's probably the, the biggest source of anxiety. Eh, maybe not now in my, for my whole life, but certainly was the biggest source of anxiety through age 25, 27, something like that. Yeah. 
so that's that's my experience with it and was obviously led to wanting to work on that for the dissertation yeah so back at the time did you recognize that the source of the anxiety was that end times doctrine yeah what i didn't know is that i had an anxiety disorder and i didn't know that what i was having sometimes were called panic attacks i did know that what was causing all of that was yeah the end time stuff and and for me particularly you know a lot of people who are raised uh religious especially within christianity they worry about going to hell they worry about not being saved mm-hmm. not being elect if you're in a calvinist tradition i never worried about that i never worried that i was out which i think is a combo of good attachment to my parents hmm. probably overly healthy ego <laughs> I mean, most people don't believe they're going to hell. Like there's some interesting sort of psych of religion research around that. It's a very untenable position to hold that I believe in hell and I believe I'm going there. Like almost nobody thinks that. Right. Unless they're thoroughly depressed um, or have some other sort of mental illness. So I didn't I didn't struggle with that personally. I know some people, that's not the same thing as uh, worrying that you might go to hell. I never worried that I would go to hell. What I was anxious about was not being able to live a full human life. Hmm. And most of my anxiety triggers throughout my life have been related to that in one way or another of like, oh, I won't get to have a full life, get into my 70s or 80s, have grandkids, uh, that kind of a thing. (laughs) So like- Eternity was going to steal your mortality. Yeah, it was like, well, I, you know, I'll be in heaven, but like, I'm not ready for that right now. Yeah. Like, why would I be born here only to be raptured at 12? <laughs> kind of a thing, you know? And it freaked me out. Totally. Yeah. Like, you still have stuff to do. I had so much stuff to do. So I, I've told this story. I did a, like, a four part series called End Times Anxiety on You Have Permission a couple years back. You can search it and find it. Um, And I tell the story there that I have a particular memory of praying that I could be naked with a woman before Jesus returned. (laughs) Not have sex, but just like, just be naked. (laughs) Exactly. I I hadn't gone through puberty yet. And so I didn't want to have sex. Mm -hmm. And I was like, God, I won't even do anything sinful. I just want to like feel a naked woman body on my body (laughs) before this is all done wow Uh, that's as pure as it gets isn't it yeah it was 11 yeah i love that i i remember having that same anxiety about like i'm gonna miss out on all the cool stuff you know that has to do with being an adult if if jesus comes so i would like pray that like god would like hold off until like i had had some of my important goals realized you know yeah Totally. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's, I don't know exactly what to make of it, but it's maybe a, an area of future study, sort of the difference between people whose primary, because since I've told that story, people have told me they had the same thing. And, you know, there's a difference between that and the more, maybe more common, like I won't be in, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough for God or something like that. Right. And those seem like really distinct anxieties from each other. So Somebody could do like a qualitative study where they interview people and, and look for differences. I'd read that. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think 
the thing that connects those two anxieties though, is just that shared sense of time is running out and I can't control it. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lack of control. Although if you think you're out and you know the way to get in, then you can control that. But I think for a lot of people, they never can feel certain, like it's such a moving target, right? Like there's no, it doesn't matter what community you're in. Nobody can ever actually point to rock solid evidence that you're safe. Right. At some point it breaks down to interpretation of the Bible or is the Bible even true? You know, like there's no, like you, there's no mathematics for it. Yeah. Well, and that's why it's so easy to gaslight yourself and be like, maybe I'm not saved. You know, maybe I didn't right. say the words to the the prayer quite perfectly. Yeah. So you get a lot of that, like religious scrupulosity, which is the, the sort of repeating prayers over and over again and saying the sinner's prayer over and over again, submitting your life to Christ over and over again. That is actually the first type of OCD ever discovered in the West. And it was discovered by monks or priests who had people coming for confession and confessing the same sins over and over again. Oh, wow. And they wrote about it, called it scrupulosity. And, and that's now kind of correlated with OCD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I listened to your previous podcast, Reconstruct. Oh, cool. Back early in my deconstruction journey. And that was really, really helpful, especially just to hear other people wrestling with the same questions yeah. and like, and I didn't feel like you were a heretic. So like, that must mean I'm not a heretic. <laughs> yeah. But that's all in the eye of the beholder. Certain other people definitely thought I was. So I'm sure can't win them all. Yeah. But so what, what kind of prompted that deconstruction and reconstruction for you? So my deconstruction, as we would now call it, I, I was earlier uh, an early adopter, I guess, because I went to a secular university out of Christian junior high and high school and studied philosophy at that secular university Ooh. in 2001. So, you know, you're going to you're going to do some deconstruction. <laughs> you're not going to get through a state school philosophy program with all your evangelicalism intact, at least not having it pretty thoroughly questioned and challenged, right? By professors, fellow students, whatever. So it started there for me. And in college, the things I was thinking about were the violence in the Old Testament. Hmm. That was kind of my first issue, which kind of makes sense as a philosophy major. It gets to questions about what God is like, you know, in the abstract. Mm -hmm. Not everybody asks those questions, but philosophers do because <laughs> we're uh, not I don't consider myself a philosopher. But when I was studying that in school, you know, we're we're talking a lot about ultimate things, goodness, morality, ethics, and whether or not you posit God has a lot of consequences for those conversations. So that was the first one for me. And then after that came hell and eventually, you know, wound, wound my way to evolution, science stuff and LGBTQ inclusion stuff. Um, and, uh, probably women in ministry before that, cause that's a an earlier stop mm -hmm. on the path, you know? So in that sense, it was 
a typical um, typical order of operations. I think because a lot of these topics are linked. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of you can't really deal with one until you deal with the other in some senses. Certainly inerrancy came in at some point. And I just started a bit earlier. I was reading the emergent church writers like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell um, during when he was still like in Grand Rapids in as part of that kind of emergent movement in the early aughts. So that's kind of how it started. And then I decided to start podcasting about six years ago, six or seven years ago. And my buddy John and I had that idea to do reconstruct together. And we, you know, we had benefited from reading and hearing others and so we're like ah, we could probably do this and it was fun yeah. yeah no you you did a great job of of talking about a whole lot of different topics but they all connected you know yeah so some feedback that i've gotten from friends who, who are listening to the podcast is that it's really important to hear diverse ways of working through deconstruction, especially where there's not a prescribed outcome of leaving religion. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of folks who have left religion and and are, you know, atheist or agnostic now. Um, but I do also know a lot of folks who are very deep thinkers and are asking the hard questions and they are still holding on to their faith. And trying to figure out how to reconcile those two things without without feeling like they're sacrificing either their intellect or their faith. And I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on how someone can make that work. My take is that if you think that taking the world seriously means not being religious, you got that idea from a fundamentalist. You didn't get that idea from a smart person. <laughs> uh, not that there are no smart fundamentalists, but there are almost no smart fundamentalists who truly let their intellect do what it can do. They uh, they choke it off at the root because you have to in order to stay fundamentalist. You can't let your curiosity do its own thing. You can't just follow it where it goes. You can't be a seeker of truth in the world and be a fundamentalist. So if you have that idea, I'm sorry to tell you that did not come from brilliant people. It came from scared people. And the, those scared people could be Christians or they could be atheists, but they're scared. And they're not interested in truth as much as they're interested in something else, maybe security, maybe membership in their tribe, maybe, you know, plaudits from other people that they look up to. Uh, but there have been brilliant, skeptical religious people in every fucking tradition since those traditions started. Mm -hmm. And the founders of some of our great world traditions were too skeptical of the traditions they were in and founded new ones that they thought accorded better with what the world looked like. So that, I mean, that's my first thought is let's, you know, like when a new atheist argues against a young earth creationist, that is two people who agree on the rules of the game. And those rules are bullshit. <laughs> right. The rules are basically either the Bible is a word for word inspired true document about the world 
or it's all shit mm-hmm. if it's not true. They both agree on that. And they're both wrong to think that that's those are the options. Yeah. In fact, I, it's it's kind of mind numbing how stupid of an assumption that is. Uh, I'm more critical of the new atheists in that situation because they should know better. The fundamentalists, I mean, I don't know, maybe they don't know any better. They're repeating stuff people have told them. Well, I think atheists can be fundamentalists, too. They just right. are clinging to different fundamentals. Yeah, it depends on how you're defining that word, right? So a fundamentalist religious person is going to have something like a sacred text or something acting in that way. It can be the magisterium of the Catholic Church. It can be the Bible. It could be the Quran or the Book of Mormon or whatever. Mm-hmm. A fundamentalist atheist is not going to have a text like that. So we're we're more using the term kind of loosely to define just like a person who's I don't know. I guess we're kind of just describing it a, a bad thinker <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you can you can certainly leave religion in a way that doesn't solve most of the problems that religion gave you. Hmm. And and that's not good. Just like I don't want like, you know, if I have a client and they're struggling with the way that their parents raised them, you know, the the goal is not to just flip around do the opposite with your kids and make your parents the enemy Mm -hmm. that doesn't like what do we want to do we want to like engage different ways of thinking about parenting we want to look at cognitive distortions that are going on if we're doing cbt we we want growth like we want we want to to change and become better uh to see the world more clearly so the antidote to fundamentalism is not just switching out the teams and saying oh I I see now I used to be on the bad team and now I'm on the good team. Right. And I thought that the, I thought the good team was the bad team. Now I know it's switched. Well, okay. That's probably not going to solve things for you. Uh, It will give you some temporary relief. And depending on how harmful your religious environment was, you might get a nice break from a whole lot of harm. uh, And that might be absolutely necessary. Um, But long run, I would hope for something more for people. Yeah. It's an interesting thought about like just jumping from one extreme end of the spectrum to the other end. It just sort of dooms us to this inevitable pendulum swing back and forth Yeah, when really the only peaceful place might be that balance that we find somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll flesh it out a little bit. So one of the things you might find in fundamentalism is a kind of cognitive rigidity. Mm-hmm. So you you know the truth, you're certain about it, and if someone presents you with opposite information, you completely block it out or shout them down or distract yourself or go surround yourself with people who all agree with you. Go to a Bible study and bring that as a prayer request, and everybody will pray for you, and they'll lay hands on you, and they'll remind you that you're all correct and that that person was wrong. Mm-hmm. You don't, yeah. uh, <laughs> you can kind of see where yep. I'm going with this. So now instead of that, it's like, okay, I'll just go to my Twitter circles and I'll post this thing. I'll get a bunch of comments and likes and everybody will remind me that I'm right, that I'm in the right tribe, you know? And it's like, well, yes. what, what we really want to do is learn to engage the other and not be rigid, but be flexible and, and be able to take evidence and consider it consider it, you know, not like jump to new conclusions immediately, but get better at moving through the world more accurately in a full spectrum sort of human experience. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's the danger. It's hard for someone who was raised in fundamentalism to even conceive of a version of being religious that isn't rigid and isn't certain about things and, you know, that isn't afraid of conflicting messages. Yeah. And that's the great sadness to me that the fundamentalist setting, for instance, the conservative evangelical setting, the conservative Catholic setting, Mormon fundamentalism, whatever, whatever it is you had, that they succeeded so well in giving you the rules of the game. Hmm. You know, like I talk about this with my friends and my wife a lot and sometimes on the podcast. When I was growing up, I was trained very successfully to think that parents who were not wanting their children to be sold out on fire for God, who didn't want their kids maybe doing youth group, you know, they they wouldn't send them on the mission trips and pay for the mission trips that that was lukewarm Christianity, that God spat that out of God's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and I find myself now as the parent of a two and a half year old being like, please let me find those Christian parents. <laughs> those are actually the ones I trust more because the more sort of zealous someone is in their faith, mm -hmm. all things equal, the more skeptical I am of them now. And I, I have to have, if someone has a really strong sort of verbally clear faith, I got to like get to know them before I trust them. And so that's totally flipped for me. And it took a long time for that to flip. It probably took worrying about my son's life for that to flip. And then I finally realized, oh, that was conditioning. That was very successful. Like I used to tell people I wouldn't want to raise kids in Europe because I would be afraid of raising kids in an atheist country where they might not know the Lord. And now I'm like, oh, it'd be fine. I mean, like we'd have to be a little bit more intentional around religious stuff and they'd have a less likely chance probably of inheriting our religion if we grew up in Europe. That's true. Uh, but it's not a deal breaker. It wouldn't ruin, you know, my son's life or whatever, like I used to think. Yeah. So that all that kind of stuff, you know, it's it's very hard to get out of that conditioning. I, I understand. I, I think earlier on I might have sounded a little bit high horsey. I hope I, I apologize for that. <laughs> I don't think this stuff is easy. I guess I'm just a little bit exhausted with so many people in the sort of deconstruction space appearing to me to have put so little thought <laughs> into like actually changing our shitty thinking habits that we were taught rather than just swapping out the teams. And I'm just like, I'm so thoroughly exhausted with that and yeah, have very little interest in it now. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's part of why deconstruction is such a scary and isolating process to go through if you are a deep thinker and if you are trying to acknowledge nuance, because there are so few people you can engage in those conversations that don't just have a strong opinion that they are very certain about. And it's just more of the same thing that you're trying to get away from. Yeah. And to be clear, people can, the people who I'm describing as like, who are really growing and getting past that black and white thinking and, and mm -hmm. all that, a lot of them do not end up religious. Like I'm still religious. I don't think that if you aren't religious, that means you didn't do the work. Like I, <laughs> that's not true. 
Um, but if you still believe in those same rules of the game, it's either conservative religion or it's all bullshit. Well, then you haven't put in some work because there are just a billion religious people in the world who are not conservative and are religious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could look, you could throw a rock and hit one. Like it's not like to pretend that that doesn't, you know, you're at some point you're pretending that doesn't exist or you're, you're sort of choosing not to think about it. Yeah. And then, and then my question would be why, you know, what's that doing for you to not think about that? Right. Well, that, that reminds me of what you were, the story you told about like the panic attacks that you used to have, you know, that can coincided with that black and white type of thinking and I actually think that we create anxiety for ourselves the more that we try to deny the reality of paradox and, you know, complicated nuance. Like that's just part of life. And the more we try and get rid of it, the more anxious we become. Yeah. Like when you're working with clients, you know, you're wanting them to be able to live with tension. And a lot of our self-medicating tendencies are a way to get us out of the uncertainty and sort of ickiness of not having an answer for something, even if that's not a intellectual question, it might be a, is my spouse mad at me? <laughs> and, you, and it's like, well, she is and she isn't. And if I can sit in that, I can, okay, well, can I work on the things that she is mad about that are my fault? Or I can go get stoned and like, solve it in the short term and of course not solve it in the long term so it's like it it's akin to that i think yeah so what prompted your focus in your doctorate on spiritual abuse i wanted to focus on something around that from the jump so in my interviews you know with the program i said i want to talk about end times teaching and mental health issues and then I got into the research and realized not only not only is there nothing about that in the sort of peer-reviewed research, there's really not even nearly enough about spiritual abuse. There's no, there are no scales in any kind of wide use. I know you just did uh, training with Dr. Catherine Keller. Yeah. Um, and she did develop one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, her scale and her dissertation were of great use to me. And and I spoke with her early on in that process, but it's not like people are out there using that. Maybe now they'll start to use it more, but you know, so there, there was just like, not, there's no agreed upon definition of spiritual abuse. So I just kind of realized that I needed to, I needed to go back a few steps topic wise. And then, uh, one of my teachers, one of my professors who is involved in my dissertation team, she was like, I think you should do a scale. And that might sound scary, but you know, I've done it before with students and I think you can handle it. And I'm glad she said that because I could handle it. it. It was scary at first, but it's not that scary. Uh, once you start to figure out how all this stuff works, it's not that complicated. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm glad that I, I'm glad that it went that direction. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad too, because I agree. We, we don't have enough uh, sort of objective definitions and scales and measurements to, start treating this epidemic effectively. Yeah. And so I'm I'm so glad for the contribution that you're making. I'm curious about some of the questions that are in this scale. Like were these just did you just kind of pull from your own experiences and those of other people or did you do some research to sort of get the questions that that most accurately describe the religious trauma experience? Yeah. 
uh, a handful of the initial pool of 66 prompts. The, the whole thing is 27 now. Um, started with 66 before all the fancy math. Most of it, though, came from uh, qualitative re uh, research around spiritual abuse. So there's a handful of studies in peer-reviewed journals over the last 15 years. And then there was kind of a, a bunch of non-academic writing around the 90s about, you know, churches that abuse the Enroth book and, and stuff like that. So I just kind of stuck with the peer-reviewed stuff and pulled pulled from that. So David Ward's work, Paula Swindle's work, um, stuff like that. Yeah. I noticed that there are some questions on here that are not necessarily directly related to like God or, or um, hell or Satan, you know, but sort of things like um, I've been denied opportunities because of my gender. Yeah. Yeah. So discrimination comes up as a form of spiritual abuse in that qualitative literature. And that makes perfect sense to me because, well, it might be good to define spiritual abuse as I, as I see it. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. yeah. So I think of it as it's a form of emotional and psychological abuse uh, that is essentially religiously themed in one way or another. That's the shortest definition. So it isn't physical abuse. It is not sexual abuse. If you are sexually abused by a priest, then you are both in my mind, both sexually abused and spiritually abused. The sexual abuse is going to have some expected outcomes that happens for people who uh, survive sexual abuse. And the spiritual abuse will have some expected outcomes, the kind of things we find for people who survive spiritual abuse. And it, it messes with your ability to have faith, to exercise your faith, to be a member in a religious group. Um, it messes with the way you use language around some of the biggest things in your life, like God, Jesus, if you're Christian, you know, all that kind of stuff. It can be very, very destabilizing and traumatic. And it can lead in my clinical experience already, uh, it can lead to the exact same outcomes as PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I like that you acknowledge the fact that it damages your ability to be in those scenarios without, you know, having those PTSD type responses. Yeah. I think a lot of folks that have not experienced spiritual abuse are, you know, kind of mystified when people leave the church, but are still believers because it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to be here with the community supporting you? Yeah. And it's like, well, that's trauma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. And, and that becomes a real, it's a real issue. It's, it's an area of further research. Lisa Oakley, for instance, um, who's my personal favorite spiritual abuse researcher. Uh, <laughs> like if, if it was baseball cards, I want her rookie card. Uh, she uh, is now working among other things on abuse resistant spiritual communities and what makes them healthy and what makes them less likely for abuse to grow. And so all that stuff's connected. You know, we need, we need to have communities that don't hurt us. Right. And so how do you know when you found one of those, like what kind of safeguards are in place? It's it's sticky. It's messy. It's necessary work. And it, it's it's happening. But we're still quite early in all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I, and, you know, it's kind of like all the companies that are focusing on DEI initiatives and being uh, trauma informed in the wake of the Me Too movement. Yeah. It's like we need a movement of trauma informed church leadership. And there are people working on that. There are theologians and psychologists 
who are working on that within the Christian church. Um, you know, I've interviewed some of them on you have permission and met some of them at conferences and stuff. It's early, but it is kind of heartening that there are a lot of people thinking through those lenses. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably the biggest barrier is the, you know, only being willing to trust the people that are in the group. And when you kind of restrict your perspective to people on the inside, that really limits what you can understand about the problem. Yes. Are you talking about at the individual level or like at the denominational level primarily? Denominational level. Right. And so that's where certain denominations are going to be a lot more open to this kind of stuff. Others will be more skeptical, but no denomination is in theory forever consigned to have no change, right? Like there are versions of biblical counselors who do pretty good therapy. You know, I I would never send someone to one if I, if I had another option, but that doesn't mean that like a biblical counselor some of them might not, for instance, shower their clients with unconditional positive regard, which will build a therapeutic alliance. You know, like no one is beyond hope. No, no denominations are in theory forever beyond hope. There are some that sure seem like they're not going to do anything good for a while, <laughs> but like, you know, there can always be growth. So like, like if you think of it in terms of certain racist assumptions you know, like 150 years ago, almost every progressive person thought black and white people should not marry each other, including Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. So like, all right, we can change. There can be change on things uh, if you give it time or if you, you know, over time, not that people need to sort of sit around and wait for it, but just, you know, it's not, it's not over. Yeah. It gives me a lot of hope to be hearing more and more and more conversations like this about how much we've changed over the course of history and how much we're still going to change. And like, we don't need to give up or, you know, wash our hands of anybody. Like we're all in a process and I'm probably going to get proven wrong and change my mind about 30 more times before I die. Oh yeah. I mean, you should, in some ways we should hope that that's true because we certainly would not be happy today believing the consensus on any number of issues from 1955. So true. Right. You know, or 1970. So yeah, we should hope that there's some better consensus coming on a lot of things and there will be, and we will have the option of embracing it or not. Yeah. So what does practicing faith and spirituality look like for you sort of post fundamentalism? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, we've had quite a long church break. Part of that was COVID, uh, but not all of it. And we are just now taking that search seriously as our son gets old enough that it could plausibly matter to him. Right. And we, you know, we both had very good youth group experiences, um, very good sort of childhood church experiences. And we're definitely confident that we can find a church that is going to be all things equal beneficial for him. So that's been a break. So I still sometimes attend services alone. Like I like to take the Eucharist and I like short church services that you might find in Catholic or Episcopal settings. (laughs) 
like a weekday Catholic mass, like 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. Bing, bang, boom, Bob's your uncle. I love that. But honestly, haven't been going very much. So for me, it's it's more, I do some contemplative prayer work in the mornings sometimes, not nearly as much as I'd like to. But the other way that I am a Christian is that I just do think of my life in Christian terms. I think of my ethical questions in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. I think of when I need to motivate myself to care about a client who's difficult or a person who's difficult, I just imagine them as a child of God. That is, that's the thing I go to and it fucking works, <laughs> you know? So like, I just do like, in some sense, I don't know that I even choose to be Christian. I think in some ways I choose things. I might choose the language for a prayer. You know, we choose to to read certain books to our son and engage him in prayer sometimes. But in other ways, I don't think I've chosen it. It's just like, yeah, that's still the most plausible and meaningful interpretive grid for my life. I've had to, I mean, that tree has been pruned. Sometimes I can't believe it's standing. So much has been pruned off of it. But, you know, like the the trunk is still pretty damn solid, I think around just the basics of Jesus's life and teachings, anything beyond that, you know, into the supernatural, the resurrection, you know, if, if there's any kind of special information whatsoever in the Bible, I don't know. I don't know about that. Hmm. Maybe, but, but it's still, and I hope so. And I really hope that there is uh, more life after this. And I think if God exists, then there is because this world's not just, but, don't know it, won't know it, never will. We'll die not knowing it. Hmm. We'll die crossing my fingers and praying and hoping, you know. I I like what you said about like, you know, the example of when you have a difficult client like you, you imagine them or think of them as a child of God and that helps you be patient or whatever. Yeah. And I think that that framework is really useful. And that's why a lot of people really love religion is it gives them a framework for sort of understanding things and especially in a positive sense, you know, hopefully it's not just the negative, but do you feel like you've tried on other frameworks for having compassion on people that, that aren't Christian? Well, I definitely use other lenses all the time that are not Christian. So Like I'll use a behavioral psychology lens constantly and I'll go, why is this person doing this? Or why am I doing this? (laughs) Right. It's often the latter. And I'll go, oh, well, I think I'm trying to get this need met. Or I think that this happened first. This is the antecedent. And then this, you know, like I, I use all kinds of lenses. I'll use an evolutionary lens. A lot of times I will. Um, I like to zoom out. That's kind of my favorite move is, okay, well, what if I zoom out here? What will become more clear? And so those are not always Christian. Hmm. I think that in moments where I need to pull from a reservoir of some sort, that's where I don't really know that I'm choosing or not. I just think that that is where my reservoir probably is, Hmm. you know? And so I can imagine people have other reservoirs, that will also work for them for sure. Yeah. But I think I've only got the one probably 
it, it would be weird to go to sit there and go, well, based on people's universal human rights as a secular humanist, I should like, I don't like, I'll just, as a child of God, you know, like that's just, it's quicker. It packs more punch. I could, I mean, I, I could make that work probably, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a choice in that moment. That is, I, I want to know more about what you mean by not knowing that you have a choice. Like that sounds really deterministic. And I know that that conflicts with some of the stuff that you've already said today. I have choices in my life. And if I made enough of those choices away from any kind of Christian habituation, then probably that reservoir would run dry. And, and I have some choice in that, but in the moment, like, and by the way, I don't, it's not like I have a bunch of clients who I don't like, I mean, more like a difficult <laughs> moment, no. I'm getting really distracted or this is, this is a boring story that I've heard before or something, you know, like just yeah. like a tough moment with a client. Right. 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 And, and dry, or I was doing a, I was doing an autism evaluation for an adult once and it was just like 2 PM and I was so tired <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I have to give this person my all because they're here for a few hours and they're spending a bunch of money to learn something about themselves. And it requires me to adhere well to how to deliver this assessment, mm -hmm. you know, cognitive assessment. And I, I had to just look at them and go, that's a child of God in front of me. And boom, I just had 30% more energy. Hmm. I don't think I have in that moment, I couldn't choose a secular humanist framework. <laughs> I mean, I could have tried one. I don't think it would have packed the punch and it just worked to, to conceive of that client through a Christian, a very broad Christian, Judeo-Christian, whatever, maybe even just call it theist huh. framework. Uh, Cause you know, that it's not a Christian thing. I didn't think about Jesus or anything, just like beloved child of God here, for a very particular reason, I got to get my shit together and give this person my best. Uh, I can rest later. And it worked. And so, and, you know, the the research around religiosity and spirituality is very robust. That's another thing. People sometimes talk and sometimes in spiritual trauma spaces talk as if religion is, we all kind of know it's not good for you. Uh, those people bear a massive burden to explain the evidence mm -hmm. in thousands of peer-reviewed studies that religion and spirituality on the whole are good for people in 30 different ways. So it's not surprising to me that in that moment I draw on it, you know, and it's anecdotal, it's my own story, but it also links up with what sociologists and psychologists of religion and everybody else already know to be true. And spiritual abuse is one of the times when it's not true. It's one of the exceptions to religion being pro-social, being a helpful way for healing from other things. Like that's when you like uh, Paula Swindle, Dr. Dr. Swindle's dissertation is called a twisting of the sacred. It's this valuable, beautiful thing that most people in most of human history have used toward their own flourishing. And you twist it and you harm someone with it for your own selfish gain and you're ruining something beautiful for them, you know? And so that's for me where a lot of the fire comes from for wanting to study this stuff is so that people can have their faith 
because for most people, it's good for them. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I agree, but I absolutely know a lot of people who do. Yeah. And, and I want that to be true that like, there is just pure positivity somewhere in there that's worth it. That makes it worth it. I just feel like in my experience, the harm outweighs any potential benefit. And I also feel like, you know, since being agnostic, I have found secular ways to get those same benefits. Like for me, instead of looking at someone and thinking that's a child of God, Mm -hmm. I look at them and I think the way that they're feeling and acting makes sense based on where they've been. It's like an empathy equation of like, based on all those things that they've been through, they're doing exactly what makes sense. Yeah. And so it's really hard to be mad or, you know, like to give up on somebody when you have that perspective. And so, and to me, that feels equally meaningful as looking at someone and saying, oh, you have inherent value because God created you. Yeah, totally. And that lens of like understanding human behavior, especially harmful, annoying, Uh uh, whatever kind of behavior. I mean, man, there's been nothing better personally than getting a doctorate in psychology, like for under, for just having such a better lens and yeah, just like a, um, it's been a better tool for problem cases. Yeah. I'll put it this way. than the religious lens has been for problem cases where you know, if you're trying to explain why is someone doing this, you go, well, they have a sin problem, <laughs> man. Fuck you. You know, like that's such a shitty explanation. So unhelpful. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not helpful. It's not verifiable. It's like to quote the big Lebowski, that's like your opinion, man. <laughs> so just to be, to be clear, like a lot of overlap there between the two of us in terms of yeah. having these various explanatory mechanisms and all of that stuff. Do you think I don't know how to ask this without sounding pedantic. So just, you'll have to forgive me. (laughs) Oh yeah. No worries. Do you, (laughs) do you think you've spent sufficient time with the research on religiosity and spirituality's various benefits to, to be able to say, yeah, it, this is not adding up or is it more from, you know, understandably the organic community that you have been a part of in throughout your life's experience. So I was raised in a community where that element of like the benefits of religion were constantly being talked about, you know, like, like it it almost gave the impression that like, if you're lost, you are going to be, you're going to have a meaningless life. You're going to be miserable. You might as well kill yourself. Like just, oh yeah, all of the good things in life apparently came from religion. And so I feel like once I started realizing that maybe some good things in life don't come from religion. Totally. It became really hard for me to not just disassemble that every time. Yep. And honestly, it hasn't been until just this year that I find myself in a mental space of being ready to like go back to that research. Yeah. Because I have new eyes and I'm a lot less cynical, I think. <laughs> you're a lot you're a lot less hurt in the moment, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. But I am still highly skeptical that it's gonna be compelling. 
please keep me updated. I'm very curious. I will. I think it's really fucking compelling. What's interesting, though, and really important, especially when you're talking to conservative Christians about this stuff, none of the research says that evangelical Protestantism is especially good for people. (laughs) Yes. Right. And that's kind of my version of what you talked about. And I heard that a lot growing up. And that's not what we find. We find that all the major religious traditions, including sometimes what we call cults or new religious movements, all of them confer similar benefits on people, connectivity to others, drawing on a source of inspiration. I mean, think about 12-step programs, Mm -hmm. you know, the God or higher power as you see him, right? It's just, it works. It just tends to work for people. I agree. But is that because of the religious part or is that because of the elements that religion has just managed to tap into? Who cares? Why, Why do you care? Well, I do if God is being used as a spiritual authority to also harm people, Mm -hmm. I care. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd rather find a way of connecting with other people and with a higher power that doesn't involve a deity who can't be questioned. Well, there are a lot of forms of religion where God can be questioned, first of all. True. Almost all forms of Judaism today would fall under that category, you know. It's in the text. I mean, like you can have Christians who ignore all the passages where people are kind of wrestling with God, but it's in the Bible. So, you know, there's you know, so there's a lot of different kind of ways to think about this. But I I just think that ultimately, if we try and replace at least spirituality, by the way, there's another stream of research. Lisa Miller, not Christian, Columbia University researching spirituality and mental health she started as a neuroscientist doing fmris on people Mm -hmm. and she says that of all the factors we can test in human beings one of the strongest negative associations with depression is whether someone is spiritual or not that is they have interaction with a higher power that is loving and guiding that's it there's no more doesn't have to be the God of the Bible, doesn't have to be Buddha, whatever, but a higher power that is loving or guiding is one of the strongest associations with protection against depression. Okay. And in a world where like, I don't know if you've seen the statistics for youth in America these days, unnerving is the softest possible word for it. I mean, we have just young people are in an absolute crisis the last decade or so. Yeah. And man, so I'm like, Okay, today, right now, if this kid's got some spirituality, let's encourage it. Like maybe in a hundred years, we will find a way to harness these benefits. But one of the groups that people thought was doing that was like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America. It's doing a lot of what religion does without the religion. And they've settled six times the sexual abuse cases that the Catholic Church has settled. Right. So... I just think that there's maybe a little bit of cavalierness and I'm not accusing you of this, but I have seen it elsewhere of like, yeah, we can find that good stuff with our sports leagues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe what if your kid doesn't play sports? Like, you know, it's not like Paul Tillich defined God as the object of our ultimate concern in some ways, religion and spirituality have a leg up in that by definition, they are about the ultimate questions. And 
if you're going to tell me that people can find plenty of meaning outside the object of their ultimate questions, I go, can they? I mean, like, <laughs> in some sense, isn't that the definition? Is that like whatever we do with those questions, that will be our spirituality or our religion, whether or not that includes a deity? Yeah. So I'm I'm a little skeptical that we can do it better. And so then I think, well, are there existing models of religion that do it better than the other models of religion? I go, yeah, there mm -hmm. are. So, okay, can we adapt from those? You know, and for some people that's hiking, you know, I, I mean, it's not, it doesn't have to be dogmatic. I think, I think the distinction between spirituality and religion is so crucial mm -hmm. because to me, religion is when you take some spiritual elements, but then you add a whole bunch of rules and hierarchy and rituals around it that are prescribed. And it's, it's not subjective. It's, it's objective, you know, like this is the way to be this kind of religion. Yeah. But then spirituality is like, you can still have that community with other people. You can have that resilience mm -hmm. from depression or anxiety through spirituality without all of the like structure and hierarchy introducing possible forms of coercion and abuse. I mean, it's, the, I don't think it's quite that simple because <laughs> it's probably not. <laughs> you get, you know, you have these gurus who do spirituality type stuff. And if they want to be bad actors, there's fucking nobody in their way. But isn't that religion? Not necessarily. No, it can be these new health movements. You know, it can be like, you can do any version of this shit. It's not like, like, it's not, the problem is a human problem. Yeah. You can have a bad actor who knows how to get people excited about stuff that is of ultimate concern to them and who can poison that for their own gain. That is true in religion. It's true outside religion. It's true in spirituality. It's true in fucking supplements. I mean, it's true in workout modes. It's true in fucking CrossFit. I mean, it's true everywhere. Yeah. Maybe not CrossFit. That Maybe CrossFit is fairly well regulated. Oh, oh, that was too far. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But I just mean like, you know, I, I try to be trying to be accurate when I can, you know, so let's say you're in a Presbyterian church and you have one such pastor and he's getting fucking weird. Mm -hmm. Cool thing is the presbytery can fire him and he's out and they meet regularly to check in on how all their pastors are doing. Yeah. So that's something. Whereas if you're like, man, now I'm going to do a total caricature. Man, religion was so bad for me. But these moon crystals, they really seem to be working. And like, who sells you those? And who's trying to build a social media empire around pseudoscience? And who's, whose pockets are you putting money into with your advertising clicks? And, you know, all this stuff, it's not, it's just not a simple, well, we'll just have the spirituality without all the religion harm. Yeah. It's not it's not that simple. I think that there is something to that. But also religious groups is where you get people more active. Their pro social, their social connections and networks tend to be higher. Hmm. If people are expecting to show up a couple times a week, they're more likely to show up. They're often very glad that they did and they find all this meaning. So, you know, like one thing I'm like axiomatic about 
is that there is not an obvious answer to this question. Yeah. Not in religion, not in spirituality, not outside of either. All three camps have some serious searching to do. And we got to look at all the domains and figure out what can be done, what's kind of hardwired into our psychology that we ought not try to replace because we won't really be able to replace it. What can we replace? You know, like these, these are like sort of the questions of my life's work. And I guess all I'm saying is they're not, there's no simple answers to them. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> it would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think you gave a lot of examples of other groups that aren't theistic, but are still religious, you know, like, like cults or even, you know, big companies. They can be. Yeah. 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 The, uh, Theranos. <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes. Right, right. Or we work with that dude. I mean, like, I was thinking about the spiritual abuse scale when we were watching, when I was watching stuff about those two companies. I mean, it's, uh -huh. there's so much there. So I actually think it's, it can come from a place of privilege. Again, and I'm really, not, I'm not trying to needle you or your listeners, but we have to think about systems that not, that people outside the 80th percentile of intelligence and above can participate in and outside the 80th percentile and above economically can participate in hmm. the way that Jim Wellman of UW described it to me is he researches mega churches and he's like, there are like 20 million American men. I don't know what the number is, whatever, who every week go get an hour of free, almost therapy hmm. when they go with their wives to church and they bring their kids and for one hour of their damn week, they think about how they could be a better husband, better father, better member of their community. Hmm. And do you want to pay for whatever the therapy would cost to replace that? Cause they're not going to go home and instead on Sunday morning, spend an hour journaling. No, but they might write a check and tithe on their way out. So maybe they are paying for it. No, but what I mean is like, if they stop going to church, if you say all mega churches close tomorrow, that will make America a better place. How are you paying mm. for the 20 million hours of pseudotherapy that they were all getting, not for free, but the state wasn't paying for it. Right. You're not paying for it. And if I don't go to church, it's not to work on self-betterment for an hour by myself. It's to watch fucking football. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't replace that time with similar time of self-focused betterment for my family. So to have a, an expected ritual where I go and I become accustomed to, I use this time to think about my place in the world and what matters to me. I mean, it's priceless, which is why spiritual abuse sucks so much. So true. Because it fucks with that priceless, valuable thing that people can do regularly and for bad reasons. Usually someone wants power or someone is anxious and the way that they get rid of their anxiety is to tell people a bunch of shit that they can't prove, you know, all this stuff. So that's like, yeah, that's my crusade. What's funny in this space is I don't always agree with other spiritual abuse researchers and, and what, and practitioners around the value of religion. Uh, but we do agree on the, um, the damage of the abuse. And so we can, we can work together even if we disagree on the other stuff. Absolutely. Hey, 
I have been thinking for a couple of years now about <laughs> making like a, a secular church service where, you know, you, you, you sing corporate music, you talk about your life, you do that pseudotherapy you're talking about and get all of those benefits, but just without needing to tell people what God they're worshiping. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think it would be great. <laughs> I mean, I think people have kind of tried it and it doesn't work, unfortunately. Why? I would love for it to work because when you drop the infinite stakes, you drop the motivation for coming. Unitarian churches exist and they don't do very well. I think that what you're describing is essentially like Oprah. Okay. And the reason it works for Oprah is, but Oprah is entertainment primarily. It is not an in-person gathering. It does not change your social connectivity in your community, you know? So people can do things and I do some of these things and I have not been going to church. So keep in mind, right. I'm not like some sort of paragon of this. I'm just trying to Yeah, but like D&D &D is a great example yeah, of totally. a ritual that I partake in that connects me to other people and makes me Absolutely. feel less depressed. Absolutely. And it's great. Um and you should keep doing that, you know? <laughs> so totally. I it's so that's not an either or. You know, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. replace your other activities with church. I'm just Yeah, I think that we can I mean, you said it. When you've been hurt, when your friends have been hurt, when you've seen up close a very unhealthy example of religion, it is easy to imagine that that is representative of religion. Mm. And it is in some ways, but I, I might actually guess that like, there might be something particular about American evangelicalism too. That's like, there are some weird facts about it that don't usually apply to religions. Like it has this, it's had this weird cultural power for like 50 years yeah. Relative to other religious movements in this country. And that gives it, it makes it kind of complacent, I think, intellectually and in other ways. Whereas you wouldn't have that if you were a Buddhist in the U.S., if you were Amish, if you were Orthodox Christian, you might, you probably don't have that if you're Pentecostal. You know, you know people at your Pentecostal church, but it's not like the president is Pentecostal, you know, like. You know, so it's it's a there's a little bit of a uniqueness too, and I want to I want to be careful to control for that because mm. that's what I grew up in, you know, and and go oh, but that's not but like if I was in England, it wouldn't be that way, and if I was Muslim, it wouldn't be that way, you know. So there's that too that I think that there's real particulars about this community we grew up in that make it harder, I think, to disentangle it from the larger thing because. When those teachers told us it's our way or the highway, it's God's way or, or Satan's way or whatever. Right. It seems more plausible when there are 40 million of us in a country of 300 million, maybe 70 million at one point, white evangelical Protestants. Mm -hmm. That If you live in the South, it's fucking everybody you know. In California, it wasn't everybody I knew. And I that's why I wasn't raised fundamentalist. You can't really, you can't really maintain it. In a pluralistic society like the Bay Area, you just you just know that there are other people. You're working alongside them at your tech company or whatever. I think you're right that it's harder to imagine like a religious community that isn't toxic if all you've ever lived in is this sort of like nationalistic dominion colonizing feel. Yes. 
hundred percent. Well, and I was yes. raised on the mission field, so I, I saw extra colonization. <laughs> yeah. And the problems there are, I mean, they're just, oh, they are legion to pull from the gospel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a total fucking quagmire, you know. That's actually the term I used for the your permission episode about modern missions. We called it the quagmire of modern missions. <laughs> Cuz it really is. And and you know, most of those organizations have not dealt even a little bit with the colonialism, imperialism that was a part of their birth that was assumed at the time when, you know, the American evangelical machine was getting going, a uh, missions machine rather. Yeah. I mean, so I get it. I just totally get it. Yeah. But like, I've also hung out with like Jesuits who are just fucking awesome and they don't have any of that stuff. And I'm just like, why couldn't I have been, why couldn't I have been raised in a family that went to like a Jesuit parish? <laughs> and if I had, my experience would be very different. Yeah. And that is hard to remember for me, but I really try to remember it because I mean, first of all, training to be a therapist, it's cultural competency. You have to remember that your culture is not the norm. Yep. And so it's fun when you do that about other religious groups, really cool, really interesting stuff pops up. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, th I feel like I'm finding myself more and more drawn towards like Buddhism lately. And I do wonder, like, if I was born into that, what would my perspective be? Yeah. If you were raised Buddhist in Berkeley, California, do you think that you would assume that religion was bad for people? No. Yeah. So that's interesting. So what's that say? What's that mean? It says that life isn't fucking fair. It's not. That's why I said, if there's a God, there's another go round because life's so unfair hmm. that it's, it's below God. If God exists. What if he's just not a good God? Uh, That's just weird. I think that's possible. There's not really any evidence that there's a bad God. I mean, Satan is literally a bad God. No, Satan's not a God. I mean, when I say God, we live in a universe. We live in a solar system that orbits one star in a galaxy made up of billions of stars mm -hmm. in a universe made up of billions of galaxies. Satan, as conceived in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Sure. It's not capable of kicking that off. So when I talk about God, I mean like whatever it takes to fucking create universes. That's God. If there's a God. Okay. That's a that's a narrower definition of God than than what I'm using. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and universes where sentient beings can become aware of said universe and where sentient beings can have spiritual experiences. Whether those experiences happen within the architecture of the language of a particular religious tradition or not. Spirituality is a fundamental human capacity. It's measurable. Most people have a good bit of it. Not everybody, interestingly enough. Another one of the ways in which life's not equal or fair. Hmm. But most people have it and children have it and they don't have to be taught it. That's really interesting. That's its own fact that I'm just like, I could probably spend my whole life thinking about just that. Yeah. But like, if God exists, then God is in some sense responsible for all of this being here. The beauty and the pain, the fact that I can pray, the fact that most human beings in time have prayed and had spiritual experiences. 
the fact that my son automatically is spiritual by default, Mm -hmm. unless I sort of train it out of him or something like that. Like, God, I hope that's true. I don't know it's true. And I will die not knowing for sure, not in the way that I know math or whatever, but I'm still going to live that way. I feel like I've just wrapped us around to the very beginning of our conversation inadvertently. I think maybe it was the spirit leading. (laughs) I doubt it. I don't really talk (laughs) like that or think like that anymore. Uh, I I leave room though. I, in my own theology, I leave room for, you know, process theologians call it the divine lure, Mm. you know, that like God sort of always luring us and, and inviting us into the loving thing to do, the just thing to do. Hmm. Um, that that's basically always on the table and we tend to know what it is. And so I believe that, but it's for me, all the theology for me is very, it's all very contingent on what are we, what are our terms? Yeah. I don't believe any of it very strongly. (laughs) You know, I think it's more likely that there's God than that. There's not God. I would put it at like 80, 20, maybe 70, 30. Okay. Maybe something like that. You know, I'm not certain. I I respect that. Yeah. 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 Well, so with all of my guests, I try to end on, you know, kind of a lighter note, not that this has been like, you know, drudgery or anything. We didn't didn't tell too many traumatic stories. No, 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 not at all. But do you have any stories of some sort of like religious culture thing that was funny or ironic? I have a fucking great story. Awesome. And it is not, it's a friend's. I won't name him to, to maintain confidentiality. Okay. A good friend of mine was a sexually late bloomer. Okay. Okay. He he was a junior in high school and he had not masturbated yet, which uh, is quite late Mm -hmm. for males in puberty. And he, of course, had all the purity culture baggage around it as well. But here's the story. He's in a band with an eighth grader and the eighth grader invites him to the junior high lock-in the overnight sort of you know the youth pastors are there and everyone just like eats candy drinks right pop stays up all night playing air Uh hockey pizza party yeah Yeah. pizza party right and there's one part of the lock-in where they get everybody together and you know they get serious and and the youth pastor's like all right guys raise your hand if you've masturbated and everybody's hand goes up except my friend oh no <laughs> uh, he got purity shame goes home that morning and just goes to town <laughs> and starts masturbating. oh my god that's so funny he was like i'm never gonna be left out again <laughs> how great is that that's how he started masturbating was the junior high purity culture lock-in mm, talk backfired he got peer pressured into it That is hilarious. I love that story so much. (laughs) Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dan. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I feel like I talked a lot. You do a better job than me of asking succinct questions. I struggle with that on my show. I mean, I struggle with that too, for sure. You did a very good job today with that. Oh, thank you. I was taking mental notes. (laughs) Yeah. So if people want to, you know, want to hear me interview other people, not quite as succinctly, you can listen to You Have Permission. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Everybody check out You Have Permission podcast. And thanks, Dan. Thank you. Bye. 
Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye.